why, why start the last message of a neighboring series with this crazy guy free climbing? Like, you can breathe now. I mean, just, that's nuts, right? This crazy guy free climbing a three-hour trek. Why start there? Because without a neighbor, someone who chose to live within proximity to him, which is what the verb neighboring means, to dwell within proximity of, this church neighbors the double-A highway, right? That's the action part of it. Alex's friend neighbored him in such a way that he would prepare a path that only Alex was called to take but that without preparation, Alex never makes the climb. You don't just free solo because you look at a mountain and go, you know what would be neat? I should just climb that. You may get 12, 15 feet off of the ground before you realize this is stupid. I'm not prepared for this. This mountain is not supposed to be climbed this way. And you make your way down, or you get a little bit higher and you realize there's no foothold here. In Alex's word, he said, it's suboptimal conditions, and you fall and you die. That video intrigues me in the beginning when his friend is saying, it's really interesting when you partner with someone that you know if it goes incorrectly could lead to their death. But it puts that much more urgency on how you have to play your role well. And on how you have to be there in the moment that he needed him the most. Which was to spend days ahead of time climbing securely roped in on the face of this mountain. And I think, I, I think you could notice it where he's pulling away vegetation, putting a hold in. And every time that his friend would put a hold in, as Alex would climb behind it, Alex would then test it. His friend was the title that he uses, he was the pro. And the pro is the provider and the protector. The pro goes ahead of the free climber so that the free climber makes it to the top. That's a good neighbor. The neighbor that goes first and makes sure that the person coming behind them can grab the hold that they're supposed to make. That they can reach the next one. That it is a part of the story that it's supposed to be. It's dangerous enough for him to feel like he's climbing free, but it's safe enough for him to still reach out and grab. That's neighboring. That's what Jesus was saying when he's saying, love your neighbor as yourself. He's saying, go and live in proximity with one another. And when the adventure comes, it might not be your mountain to climb. It might be someone else's mountain to climb, but you be the placeholder. You stand in the gap. You fill the space. And you create a safety around the world that exists in your midst so that when it's time for them to climb, they understand the freedom that they can experience. Ben set me up with his joke, and he didn't even know that he was going to. He's given me like 26 minutes to make fun of him since he tried to make fun of me. It's great. <laughs> Here we go. Just kidding. So yeah, I was a quarterback in high school for football my sophomore year. Reason? The varsity team was like 2-8 and eight the year before. They were awful. We were awful. Our starting quarterback had gotten knocked out in the game before. I think we had lost that game like 63 to nothing. But who's counting? It's fun. The only team we could beat was Lewis County. <laughs> Sorry, Coach Mack. 
in the midst of this game where we were about to play McGoffin County, they were ranked like third in the state at the time, I believe. Our starting quarterback had gotten injured the game before or didn't want to play. Um, it was questionable as to which one he had chosen in that moment was whether or not he was really hurt or he knew this was going to end badly for us. So maybe this is the week that you take off. We're going to get destroyed anyway. Next man up was me. All five foot three of me realizing that my job in life was not going to be to play quarterback in the NFL. I had come to realize that while um, I loved the game, my body was treating me a little bit differently than I had hoped. And my knees were not extending the way that they were supposed to. I knew I was a placeholder. I knew it was my job to get us through whatever the next thing was in order for us to keep going forward. And so I learned how to play quarterback. And I played for JV, which was fun because I was fast enough to elude really big people. And I remember walking out on the field for that varsity game thinking, there is no reason that I should be the starting varsity quarterback as a sophomore in high school for this team against that team today. And it's raining, and I do not have the biggest hands in the world, so we may not throw the football for four quarters today. I don't know, but I know what my job is. My job is to hold this place so that our team can do what we can. And then when it's over, somebody who's better at this will come in and play free. His name was J.T. Walsh. He became a great quarterback, and we actually won more games with him behind there because he was skilled in that position. But I held my place for a season. It hurt. It hurt a lot. I got destroyed. But I did it. And I learned lessons from even that season of life where I, well, the number one lesson that I learned was I should play soccer. Um, I was like, it. <laughs> I can still play that sport even as I'm an old man. But one of the biggest lessons that I learned was just because you're not going to be the hero in a spot doesn't mean that you're not supposed to fill it for now. And that's the role of a neighbor. It's not to take the story from the people who live life around us and to try to make their story our story and become the hero for them, but it's to stand next to them, to be in proximity of them, and to ask the right questions to find out what story is God writing through the people who live close to us, and how can we be a placeholder in that story until they're ready to climb free. Jesus played that role for all of his disciples. When he looked at them and said, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, in Matthew chapter 22, and then when he said, and love your neighbor as himself, he was saying, as I've loved you, as I've stood in this gap, he says in John 14, the Holy Spirit's going to do even more through you than he has done through me, which is an absurd thing to say. This is the Savior of the world who overcame death and reconciled us back to God, and he's looking at us and saying, but you... You're my neighbor, and so I love you more than I love myself. I'm going to empower you with a spirit that can do greater things than you've seen me do when I've spat in the mud and healed blind people, when I've reached out and touched lepers and they've been healed, when I've brought tax collectors into my midst and they've found a new purpose in life. You're going to do more than that, but, and there's always that but that just sits in the middle of the invitation, that leads to a challenge, but 
you have to love your neighbor as you love yourself. You have to live in proximity with them in the same way that you let the gospel live in proximity with you. And we only climb those crazy mountains when someone goes first and sets up these protections so that we can actually get to the top. The first time that I showed that video was at a youth retreat that I direct and lead. That's kind of my job, is to go around um, the country in a calendar year and to share the gospel and to teach leadership tools to as many middle school and high school students as I possibly can. And so last year, uh, I was able to share the gospel with over 2,000 students between Mexico and Ohio, and I just came back from San Diego, California, talking and encouraging youth workers because what I've found to be the mountain that I'm called to climb is leadership in emerging generations. That if someone doesn't go and, and put these things up on the mountain, next generation leaders won't know how to enable the kingdom of God in the current culture. And so that's kind of been me over the last several years. The average youth worker in America now is over 40 years old. There are only one in seven youth workers who are working in churches or investing in the generations that are coming behind us. Only one in seven is under the age of 40. Thankfully, I'm still that one for a few more years. But what's interesting is while that's the national average, all of the people that I partner with, all of the men and women that I work with in youth ministry, save two, are all under the age of 40. Because we've been able to create this context, this environment around us that says, you're not too young to lead right now. It's actually the perfect time for you to lead. If you're in your 20s, you're not the future of the church. You are the church right now. And the church that needs to figure out what it's going to look like in culture is going to need to listen to the 20-somethings. But the 20-somethings need enough wisdom to be willing to be listened to. And so my mountain is emerging generations and sharing the gospel. And so I was at this fall retreat with a few hundred high school students and their youth workers, and I showed that video. But the interesting thing that's a little bit different than this room is when we showed that video, we had a 35-foot um, ladder just kind of hanging in the middle of the room as they walked in. And so they're watching this mountain climbing video, and they're seeing this ladder suspended in midair, and they're thinking, you're going to make us climb this thing, and nothing's holding it up. Like, it's just there. And as we start the video, one girl in the room verbalizes what everyone else is thinking. And she's like, uh-uh, not me, not going to do it. And you can hear in that moment, everyone else is just like nervous laughter, like, yeah, we're in too. Can we go home now? Because we're not climbing that thing. And there was this fear that we were going to make them do something that they're not ready for. And we actually started the retreat with that on purpose because what we wanted them to think and what I want you to think at the same time is through the perspective of the people who are living in the houses next door to you if they know that you're a Christian. To the people at your schools if they know as whether you're a teacher or a student if they know that you're a Christian. They're seeing all the things that we've been labeled as and what neighboring with us is supposed to look like and they're like, nuh-uh, not going to do it. You people are crazy. I don't know that this Jesus thing is a mountain that I want to climb. I don't know what you're doing in the name of that Jesus culturally is something I want to be a part of. And so they walk into the room and they already have this presupposition of what it looks like to live life with us. And it's scary and it's intimidating. And it's filled with lies and misconceptions on really what following Jesus is because the church as a whole 
has not done neighboring well. We try to do winning more than we do neighboring. We win you to Jesus and then you're allowed to be our neighbor. Instead of neighboring with you and getting into the muck that is your life until a place where Jesus' light meets you in your darkness and in that place we'll say, oh yeah, him, that's what this is all about. Oh, it makes sense now. Because you were with me when it was dark, you were with me when the shadows were there, and now you're with me in the light. That makes sense. But if you just want to come shine a light on my darkness and tell me how dark it is around me, I already get enough of that at home. I already know there's darkness all around me. My question is, will you come sit in it with me? That's what the world is asking us. So much that's going on in our culture currently is less about executive orders that a president has made and dark lies and feelings that people groups feel in response to what they believe a word was that was said. Does that make sense? Like it's not so much what was said, maybe it is, I won't take a political stance on that, but what I could say is something was said, an order was made, and people are afraid. And it's in that fear that neighboring happens. It's not walking in to prove to those who are afraid that a decision was right or wrong. It's walking in to a decision that has been made on the behalf of people that has illustrated how they can and cannot live and saying, no matter what happens, I'm with you. Because you live next door to me. You live across the street from me. Or in my case, you live in Monterey, Mexico, and you're my closest friends because I get to travel there often. I'm with you. Let's figure this thing out. We've got a mountain to climb, and the way to climb it just changed. That's neighboring. In Galatians chapter 6, you can look it up if you want to. I'm going to read it to you. Paul is addressing this idea of neighboring when he talks to the church in Galatia. Sometimes, and I'll preface this, this passage with this way, sometimes in, in Scripture... A principle is hidden within the context of an issue. So sometimes we read in the New Testament where there's an issue brought up or Paul mentions an issue and he gives a principle how to fight that issue but it's not just for that issue alone. It's a principle that is a kingdom principle but he finds it in the midst of an issue. And in Galatians chapter 6, he talks in the beginning in verse 1 which that part won't be on the screen, but he talks about a specific issue of saying, if you find someone in sin, this is what you should do. So that's the issue. The issue Paul is addressing is when other people are in public sin and they're making mistakes, but to clarify his issue that he's talking about, he's going, when people in the church community are making a public sin, you're wanting to know how to address it. But in reality, in the principle in verses 2 through 5 that, he's about to, that he shares are not about sin. It's a principle that works when you're addressing sin, but it's actually a principle that is about the kingdom that says, this is just how you should live. Don't forget how you should live. And oh, by the way, when somebody's in public sin, don't forget how you should live. But this is just it. When someone's going through a cancer experience, this is how you should live. When someone is going through a divorce, this is how you should live. When someone is going through temptation, this is how you should live. When someone loses their job, this is how you should live. So it's a principle that trumps the circumstance but in the beginning of, of Galatians chapter 6, he's saying this is the circumstance that we're dealing with because it made the church at Galatia pay attention. 
Because they're like, oh yeah, we've got some public sin going on right now. So they just sat up when he started to say this because he knew he was talking about their mess. But then Paul goes in and he gives this principle. And this is what he says, starting in verse 2 of Galatians chapter 6. He says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Right, I'm going to translate this because this is a, it doesn't make any sense. It's a weird passage. Because it actually seems like it contradicts itself. If I like slowed down and read the whole thing, it's like Paul just said, Hey, carry each other's burdens. And then at the end in verse 5, he said, carry your own burden. And, and the crowd is like, what are, you, what are you talking about? You just said to carry it together, and then you said carry it by myself. Paul, you're weird. Paul was very weird. But he used words to specify the roles that we should have. And so notice a couple of things about what he says first. Is one, comparing ourselves to our neighbor's work is never going to work out. He says that in verse 4 and 5. Anytime we compare ourselves to whoever lives next door, always ends badly. Our circumstances are different. Our upbringing are, is different. Our biology is different. Our biographies are different. Everything that's been written around us is different from the person who shares a backyard with us. And if there are so many differences in all of these other factors, comparing ourselves to them is going to end poorly for them as we judge them or as we envy them. And it's going to end bad, end bad for us as we believe the lies about our life that God is good for them or bad for them and good to us or whichever one. When we get into a comparison of those who we live in proximity with, it ends badly. So what Paul first says, he says, dial in. You'll be known by the work that you do, not by the work that anyone else does. So when you write out your story and say, what I came from, what I've experienced, and what I'm a part of, that's what God's going to go, yep, yep, and yep. I know where you came from. I spoke it into existence. I know what you went through. I was there in the heartache and in the brokenness. And I know that in spite of all of that, you were still faithful and loyal and obedient to the word and to the truth. And for that, I bless you. That's what he wants to say to all of us. But most of the time he ends up saying, going, wait a minute, where did you stop trusting me? I was there. I breathed you into existence. I saw the circumstances that you were going through. And instead of trusting me in those circumstances, you compared yourself to your next door neighbor. And you questioned why you had to go through this junk and they didn't. You wondered why they weren't there for you when you were in the midst of chaos. And you started to compare and contrast instead of invite. So Paul is first giving us a warning and saying, don't compare yourselves to each other. Easier said than done. I know. I'm in ministry. It's the world of like the comparison. Every conference is about how many and how often and how, what's a win look like. I left local youth ministry in 2008 and went on to a parachurch organization. When I started with this parachurch organization, the first thing that was said to me by multiple people was, do you ever think you're going to get back in ministry again? And I'm like, where does that question even come from? Like, I'm sharing the gospel globally now. But the mentality was, you're doing it right if you work in a local church as a youth minister. You're doing it. You, you must have done something wrong if you got kicked out and you have to work for a, a parachurch organization and raise your own support. And I'm like, whoa, wait a minute, where did that come from? And immediately my comparison started going that I would go into a place where I would say, is there something wrong with me? Have I been disqualified? Why would someone else be in ministry 
at a church and I am over here in this like weird space of camps and retreats and mission trips and leadership development, like why am I over here? And it was because I chose to compare myself instead of embracing the story that God was writing. And when he moved me and shifted me, I started to realize that I was wired for adventure. My parents will be in full agreement with that. Like I moved out after high school and just never came home. Because I'm just like, I got to go. Like here's CCU. Here we go. One time when I was in college, my mom called me and she's like, where have you been for a week? I was like, Florida. Were you going to tell us? Oh, that's a good idea. I don't know. I just went. Like there was a car full of people and they were going to Florida. And I was like, I'm in. I have a wife because I jumped into a car and went to Chicago for a weekend and just hung out and watched professional soccer. I just love adventure. And I can look at my story and go, God guided me because of what he wrote in me, or I could not have a story because I'm comparing myself to who lives next door to me. But then what happens when we get beyond the comparison? When we get beyond the comparison, we start to get the invitation to share life with our neighbors, to live in proximity with them next door. And that's when Paul in Galatians 6, that's when he gives us the principle. He says, bear one another's burden, but help each other carry your own load. And he uses two different Greek words here. When he says, bear one another's burden, he uses the Greek word, which you don't care about, but I do. So humor me, baras, B-A-R-A-S, which means... A weight that an individual cannot carry on their own. So the Greek word in that means bear one another's burden. Carry something that a human cannot carry by themselves. But then at the end when he says you're going to have to carry your own load, he uses a a different word for burden there. Both of them can be translated into English as burden, but he uses this word called fortion, which fortion is actually used in Roman writings, in historical writings, as a Roman soldier's backpack. It weighed about 75 pounds. And he's using an illustration. He's saying, each one of us has a backpack full of life that we're supposed to carry on our own. Help each other, help your neighbor become strong enough to carry their own backpack by helping them carry the things that one person is not strong enough to carry in their burden. But we often get it wrong. We often flip that. We often take things that belong in people's backpacks and we make them our burden. And then when we leave, and maybe you've experienced that, or when someone else leaves, Jesus went with them. If you've handed over your spirituality to a senior saint, someone older than you and wiser than you, and you've been completely dependent on them for your spiritual growth, and they leave, then you go, wow, where did Jesus go? Because you've handed your backpack, your load, to them. Or maybe you've been in this circumstance with a family member or a friend where they were in crisis. You stepped in to help. You took so much of their life into your hands that you were at their house. You were making them breakfast. You were getting them ready for their kids ready for school because you thought this thing is so heavy that they're carrying. I need to free them up as much as possible. And you took all of these daily activities that every human should be carrying on their own. And you took them and you threw them in your backpack and you started doing them. And then their crisis was over and you went home and you're like, okay, crisis averted. So glad it worked out. And you went home, but you took their backpack home with them, with you. And you went home, maybe you've experienced this, and then they called you and they're like, I need you. Can you come over? What do you need? I don't know where anything is. 
I can't make breakfast anymore. Can you pick my kids up from school? Can you, all of these things, because when people go through crisis, when our neighbors go through an experience in life, we're really good at helping, but I think we often help with the wrong things. Here's what I mean by that. In 2008, in 2000, yeah, 2008, I met a kid, his name was Skyler. Skyler was a freshman in college, or in high school. He was stealing from all the neighborhoods in Mason, Ohio. Like he would go out at like 2 o'clock in the morning and bust through windows and steal GPSs and then sell them on eBay just to make money. He was dabbling in drugs and he was mesmerized by the theology of Jesus. He would show up at this youth group every week. His friends had been praying about him and a bunch of them had come to me and they're like, hey, can you pray with me over this guy named Skylar? And I'm like, yeah, sure. And like five guys came into my office and were just like, Skylar, Skylar, Skylar. And I'm like, Jesus, who is Skylar? And what do you want from him? Because all of these, his friends keep bringing his name in. Finally, I get to meet Skylar and I, and I find out that when uh, Skylar was about eight years old, his dad bailed, alcoholic passing his, in his dad's relationship. He chose beer over his kids and his wife. Mom tried to figure out how to function on her own, but she wasn't really interested in being a parent. She was more interested in gambling and taking care of herself, so she would take all of the food that was supposed to be for the family, and she would label um, the, the Rubbermaid stuff in the refrigerator with her name on it, and her kids weren't allowed to eat anything that had the mom's name on it. So there was some major selfishness going on, self-preservation, everybody just kind of take care of yourself, and that was the environment that Skylar had grown up in. So by the time I met him, his parents are really out of the picture unless they absolutely need something. When his mom needed something, she would ask him to come home and help her with something, and then she would go through his wallet and take his cash so that she could go do something on her own, and then she would kick him back out. Because he was living in an affluent area in Mason, Ohio, it was pretty, pretty affluent for the Cincinnati area, there were multiple families who would just host Skylar, and he would just live in their basement with one of his best friends for a month until responsibility was given to him of saying, hey, if you want to stay here, here's how you do the laundry in this house, or here's how you do the dishes, and then he would bail. He's like, man, I'm a victim. Like, I'm bailing. I'm out of here because you can't tell me what I have to do. You're supposed to, I'm just supposed to be taken care of because everybody's taking my load off my shoulders because my parents are such a burden. So he would bounce around all the way through high school, but by, finally by his senior year of high school, he and I are meeting every week at that point, and, and he's come to realize he's a train wreck, he's a mess. And Jesus is doing some cool things in his life, and he's trying to you know, get out of an old way of life. He's tried to give up you know, stealing GPSs. And one of his friends gets caught in a major drug ring, and that scares him to death, and so he quits that. And he sits in front of me and he says, I'm going to go to Bible college. I think that we need some youth workers who have my kind of background that can talk to my kind of student and be kind of their neighbor, right? And I'm like, that's a great idea. So we set up a way to get him to a Christian university and to get him in for free because he has no, no resources. We set him up, and it's not six months later that he calls me and says, hey, can we go meet because I have a problem. And I'm like, sure. So we go to this coffee house. We sit down, and he looks, and he's like, two nights ago, my dad got drunk again and um, rode his motorcycle and got hit by a truck um, on his motorcycle on his way home. He's in the hospital. Lower half of his body is all broken. Like, everything in there is broken. He didn't break his back. Like, he's lucky to be alive. Like, I, man, that is rough. I hear you. Um, what's he asked from you? And he's like, he told me that I have to come home, whatever that means, and take care of him because that's why, like, I was created. That was really his dad's words where you need to come home and take care of me because I'm your dad. 
And I'm like, what, how, how do you feel about that? And this guy was like, what do you mean, how do I feel about it? I'm like, how do you feel like this guy who's been so absent from your life and done nothing but hurt you all of a sudden has this overwhelming need for you? What are you feeling? And he's like, there is no feeling. I just have to go home because he's my dad. No one else is there. So I, just, I was meeting with you to tell you I'm dropping out of college to go home to take care of my dad and to fix him. And here's what I thought I said. Here's what I thought he would hear me say. I thought I said... I don't agree that you have to leave all of this in order to help with this. Let's figure out how to help with this so that you don't have to leave all of this. But what Skylar heard was, you want to take my identity, you want to take my backpack, you want to take my load, you want to fix me because you think I'm broken because of the way I'm trying to fix my dad, and you're not going to help me. That's what he heard. He heard me say, Stay at school, let your dad figure it out on his own. He's a big boy. That's what he heard. So for two years, Skylar wouldn't talk to me. No communication. I heard through one of our friends that he was um, getting made perfect, and he wasn't living with his dad. Like, I heard all these pieces of information, but I didn't hear from Skylar, and I wasn't really sure why. I thought, I thought that I left it with, I'm here. Let's do this together. I'm with you. And what he heard was, you're judging me, you're telling me that I'm wrong, and you want to help me, but you won't help my dad, because you think he's a jerk. I did think he was a jerk. So two years later, Skylar gets married, I'm out on a little jog around this park that's close to my house, and as I jog, I see this couple in front of me, and I look, and I'm like, oh, that's Skylar, huh, it must be his wife, never met her. This is going to be awkward, because they looked like they were in like a little heated discussion as they were walking. Don't know if you're married and you've ever had one of those. And so I'm thinking, I'm jogging up behind them, and I'm going to scare them, and this is going to be weird, but it's someone that I know, if it was someone random, I wouldn't care. I would just run by and let them scream, and it'd be great. And I would just get a little enjoyment out of like freaking this couple out, because they didn't hear this runner behind them. But I know him, and I want to say hi, but we haven't talked in two years. So as I jog past, I'm just like, what's up, Skylar? I actually called him Sky Daddy because that was our nickname for him. So I'm like, what's up, Sky Daddy? And as I jog past, I hear his wife cuss really loudly. Like she says, holy, and I'm like, I still have that effect on people. It's awesome. And I just keep jogging. <laughs> keep your thoughts to yourself. Um, and I just keep on jogging. And I get home, and I have a text from Skylar, and he's like, hey, man, um, can we meet up? So we go back to that same coffee shop. And as we sit down, he wants to start, but I won't let him. And I look at him and say, Skylar, man, I, let me start. Um, two years ago, you came to me with a burden. He's your dad. He was all busted up. He had hurt you. He was making all these decisions. And something happened that day, and I hurt you because I tried to question whether or not you believed in yourself and all you needed was me to say how do you want to help your dad I'm in and Skylar looked at me and he was like man for two years I thought you were so disappointed in me for wanting to take care of my dad I was like I wasn't disappointed in you I was confused because I didn't know how I had offended you and I thought our relationship was deeper than that to where you could go, hey, Chris, stop being a jerk and help me with my dad. He was like, man, 
I was too busy believing my own lies that my identity was wrapped up in my dad and I took my backpack from you and then I gave it to him and said, here dad, I'm going to go take care of you and you're going you're to tell me I'm a good son and that's going to make everything better. And I'm like, how'd that work out? And he's like, terribly. It ended with my dad drunk again, standing in his boxers on the balcony of our apartment with my guitar plugged into an amp, singing God bless America to all of our neighborhood. I was like, how did he get the beer? He can't walk. He's like, he rolled down a hill crawled into a speedway and rolled back and crawled back up the hill because he loved beer so much. I was like, what would you do? He was like, I packed my stuff up, unplugged the amp to save the neighborhood and walked out. And he was like, and in that moment I wanted to call you, but I was so angry with myself for letting our relationship get so messed up that I couldn't. I'm like, I'm so angry with myself that when you walked into that apartment and you saw him standing in his boxers, I didn't want to see that part, but I wanted to be standing next to you so that we could walk out together so that you weren't carrying this burden by yourself. I screwed it up because I wanted to tell Skylar how much value he had. He knew I valued him. He just had no idea how to carry the burden of this relationship and this broken person that was in his life. So we had some conversations and we figured out some ways in which for Skylar to keep succeeding and doing his own thing and for his dad to get help without anybody stealing anybody's identity again. Cool part of that story is that a year later, Skylar and his dad have, they both own Harleys and they go on rides together. And they talk about Jesus, and Skylar didn't move in with his dad, and his dad didn't move in with him after he got married. Skylar went and told his dad, hey, I'm here to help you. But you're going to do this on your own. Otherwise, you're going to lose everything. How can I help? And I would call Skylar and go, hey, you're helping your dad. How can I help you? Because each of us as a neighbor is called to carry our own load, our own identity, our own value, our own belief in who God is. But a good neighbor stands next to another neighbor and says, what can't you carry on your own? And we ask that question before we get involved. And we don't question whether or not someone takes our advice. We don't question whether or not um, they do it the way that we would do it. We ask this question, is it heavier than they can carry? And then we ask a second one, am I in? Because when we ask those two questions, we can let Jesus do his Jesus thing and be bigger than any issue that we can deal with on our own. But we don't leave each other. So here's how we land this morning. Do you have a neighbor that's carrying something bigger than they can carry themselves? Do you have a neighbor that you've stolen their identity from and you've put it on your own shoulders. And by neighbor, I mean brother, sister, mom, dad, husband, wife, kid, aunt, uncle, or your best friend who just happens to live across the street. Have you stolen anything recently because you weren't sure who you were in Jesus? So you took someone else's identity and you put it on your back and you said, oh, now I have value again. If that's you, in the name of Jesus, it's time to give it back. 
And if someone around you is carrying something that's bigger than they can carry, know that you have the freedom to pick up a piece of that burden with them and it won't define you and it won't wound you and your faith won't become their faith and your health won't become their health. You won't have to trade a transaction. You just be a placeholder. Say, until you can hold this on your own, I'm with you. I'm in if you're in. And the way we know that to be true is through this moment that we're about to share with each other. When that little piece of bread hits your mouth, reflecting the body that was broken when Jesus went to the cross, know that that's the one who said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I can carry anything that you invite me to carry with you. And when that juice touches your lips, know that it is in that that both Jesus and Paul said, do this under the umbrella of reconciliation. If you've stolen from someone else, if they've stolen from you, that when you take the juice that is the reflection of what is the blood of Jesus, that we believe in the truth, that reconciliation beyond human understanding is an option. That's what he brought to us through his shed blood. He poured his out so that we didn't have to shed blood with our neighbors. Remember that truth as you look around you this week and see someone carrying a burden that's greater than they can bear. And you take your spot and stand next to them so that their yoke becomes easy and their burden becomes light in the name of the one who created us. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for being bigger than our mistakes, for being the God who reconciles. And ultimately, Jesus, we thank you for making neighboring such a key part of your story. Teach us this week how to do it well. Show us what belongs in our own identity and our own load. And teach us how to carry burdens well. Because we know that that is the message of your gospel. That is your good news. We don't have to carry these things alone. But we are free to adventure with you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.